Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking some Chardonnay. What about you, Del? I am drinking a Tequila Sunrise, and on this week's episode, we're going to actually look at two cases that show two different sides of the justice system. First, we will look into what happens when you terrorize a town enough to turn multiple people into vigilante killers and leave the police helpless. It might sound strange, but that is exactly what happened to Ken McElroy, and his murder remains unsolved. Ken Rex McElroy was born on June 1st, 1934 to Tony and Mabel McElroy and grew up outside of Skidmore, Missouri. He was the 15th out of 16th child and his parents were poor migrant tenant farmers. He was a high school dropout and his criminal history started at 15 with small time thefts. He also started to gain a reputation as a womanizer. He fathered 10 children with multiple women. McElroy met Trina McLeod when she was 12 and repeatedly raped her. She became pregnant at 14 and dropped out of school to go live with McElroy and his third wife, Alice. Two weeks after giving birth, Trina and Alice fled to Trina's parents' house. McElroy tracked them down and forced them to return home. McElroy divorced Alice and married Trina to circumvent statutory rape laws. In order to force Trina's parents to agree to their shotgun wedding, he shot their dog and burned down their house. Like we stated previously, Ken was a career criminal who avoided jail due to his high-powered attorney, Richard McFadden. He was indicted 21 times for various crimes, including theft of grain, gas, alcohol, antiquities, and livestock. The witnesses often refused to testify. He stalked his targets and watched them at home. He often would have a gun with him and the victims could not get the police to step in. In June of 1973, McElroy was indicted on arson, assault, and statutory rape charges. He was arraigned and released on a $2,500 bond. Since she was still a minor, Trina was placed in foster care in Maryville, Missouri. McElroy went to the foster home and told the family that he would do a girl-for-girl trade. McElroy knew where the foster family's daughter went to school and her bus route. As a result of this threat, more charges were filed against McElroy. On July 27, 1967, Skidmore farmer Romaine Henry said McElroy shot him twice with a shotgun after Henry challenged him for shooting weapons on his property. McElroy was charged with assault with intent to kill. McElroy denied that he was at the scene. As the case dragged on without a court date, Henry said that McElroy had parked outside his home at least a hundred times. At the trial, Two raccoon hunters testified that they were with McElroy the day of the shooting away from Henry's property. Henry was forced to admit in court under questioning by McElroy's attorney that he had concealed his own petty criminal conviction for more than 30 years ago. McElroy was acquitted. In 1981, one of McElroy's children tried to steal candy from a local grocery store owned by Ernest Bow Bowen Kemp and his wife Lois. The child got into an argument with the clerk, Evelyn Summy. McElroy then began stalking Bone Camp's family and threatening Bo. This led to a confrontation in the back of Bo's store, and McElroy shot Bo in the neck. Luckily, Bone Camp survived, and McElroy was charged with attempted murder. McElroy was convicted at trial of assault, 
but freed on bail pending his arrest. After being released, McElroy went to the DNG tavern with an M1 Garand rifle and bayonet and made graphic threats about what he would do to Bowenkamp. This led to several patrons deciding to see what they could legally do to prevent McElroy from harming anyone else. Nodaway County Sheriff Dan Estes suggested they form a neighborhood watch. On the morning of July 10, 1981, townspeople met at the Legion Hall in the center of town with Sheriff Estes to discuss how to protect themselves. During the meeting, McElroy arrived at the DNG Tavern with Trina. As he sat drinking at the bar, word got back to the men at the Legion Hall that he was in town. Sheriff Estes instructed the assembled group not to get into a direct confrontation with McElroy, but instead seriously consider forming a neighborhood watch program. Estes then drove out of town in his police cruiser. The citizens of Skidmore then decided to go to the D&G Tavern. After McElroy finished his drinks, he purchased a six-pack of beer, left the bar, and entered his pickup truck with Trina. While parked, McElroy was shot twice once with a center rifle and the other with a 22 caliber rimfire rifle. There were 46 witnesses, including Trina, but no one called for an ambulance. The witnesses claimed to be unable to name the assailant or that they didn't see them. Trina claimed Del Clement was one of the shooters. The DA refused to press charges based solely on Trina's word. McElroy was buried at Memorial Park Cemetery in St. Joseph, Missouri. On July 9, 1984, Trina McElroy filed a $5 million wrongful death lawsuit against the town of Skidmore County of Nottoway. Sheriff Danny Estes, Steve Peters, the mayor of Skidmore, and Del Clement, whom Trina accused of being the shooter, but who was never charged. The case was later settled out of court by all parties for the sum of $17,600, with no one admitting guilt, for the stated reason of avoiding costly legal fees should the suit proceed. Trina remarried and moved to Lebanon, Missouri, where she died of cancer on her 55th birthday on January 24, 2012. Aside from Del Clement, no other persons of interest have been named, and the town shows no signs of revealing Ken McElroy's killer. So, Jenny, do you agree with the town not cooperating with the police to bring McElroy's murderer to justice? I don't but I completely understand their frustration and their fear. I mean, people called him like the town bully, and I really think that's what he was. A lot of people said he just really wanted to feel like he was tough, and I'm sure after a while he knew he could get away with whatever he wanted, and the townspeople were sick of dealing with it. The police weren't doing anything, and they felt powerless. And while, like I said, I understand why they would want to take the matters into their own hands it doesn't make it acceptable. What about you? Yeah, I definitely agree that one of the things that definitely comes up anytime you're reading about him is the fact that everyone felt like they were so powerless and there was nothing that they could do. And they repeatedly tried to get the police to do something about it. They constantly tried to go and say, hey, this guy is stealing from us. He's shooting us, he's stalking us, and he's making it an unsafe place to be. And the police were like, well, okay, neighborhood watch. Like, that's not doing anything. That's not you doing your job. Clearly, you have evidence against him. And yeah, this was before the time of like massive like CCTV, but I'm pretty sure there was some type of surveillance systems in place where they're seeing him 
sit outside of someone's house over a hundred times. Like I couldn't imagine someone being outside my house a hundred times for the sole purpose of scaring me into not being truthful about a crime that they committed against me. Yeah, that's terrifying. And I thought the same thing, like what is a neighborhood watch really going to do? I mean, even if one of the neighborhood watch people maybe like saw McElroy like about to attack someone and then they shot him, like I feel like you could still kind of consider that like vigil anti-justice because they aren't the police. I mean, maybe then it would have been a little more acceptable because you could say like, oh, I killed him in defense of so-and-so. But it brings up like a lot of like, why even bother doing that? And I feel like the neighborhood watch would maybe even be like a glorified like surveillance system almost. And I feel like they didn't need the neighborhood watch because everyone in the neighborhood was on alert of like about him already. That's such a great point to bring up that like, it wasn't only a couple people being targeted. We only brought up a couple examples, but it seemed like the things that he was doing was affecting everyone in town. And keep in mind, Skidmore is a relatively small town. And I know I'm from the city, and so small town dynamics are always something that's really fascinating for me. Uh, Small towns have a reputation of being quaint and the perfect place to raise a family, And while this is usually true, small towns can also be a big breeding place for gossip, town-wide ostracizing, and in this case, a realm of silence that allows a murderer or murderers to roam free. Yeah, I'm from a small town. I've pretty much always lived in a small town. We definitely don't have any murderers, but I also can say I'm not really involved with like the politics of this town. We've had the same mayor for a very long time. The same people like in our county tend to get elected too, but I know for this town at least, it seems kind of like a lot of people stay here for a while. Like when I went to high school, um, a lot of people who I went to school with, like their parents went to school there, their aunts and uncles went to school there, and they all kind of knew each other. And I think that definitely like breeds the gossip and maybe like people sticking up for so-and-so like, oh, they're a good guy. Like I went to high school with him. Like now he's my plumber, like something like that. Right. I definitely think that small towns create this connection and bond that you really don't get in big cities. And I would say from my perspective, I like a city life where I'm not really worried about people knowing who I am. Like, I have no idea who my neighbors are. I don't know their names. I don't know what they do. I just know that they live next to me. But in small towns, that's not the situation. And unfortunately, a lot of times it can create a hostile environment if you're not someone that fits necessarily within the mold of the small town. And while many people have glamorized vigilante justice through things like Batman, it does highlight what frustrated people do when they feel like they have no other options. So one example is Latiqua Mays, and she was assaulted by Donald Robinson, and he didn't receive a tough sentence for the sexual assault. He got around six years for it out of a possible 18 years, and then he was released early on probation and ended up assaulting one of Latiqua's neighbors. And the police had told her because he violated his parole, he would go back, but he didn't. And so when she saw him on the street, she started screaming, he raped me, he's a sex offender. And that attracted the attention of her father and some other people in town. And 
a group of teens actually went up to him and they held him down. They started kicking him, punching him. Latiqua pepper sprayed him. And all of this was caught on surveillance cameras. And it showed that Robinson was actually able to walk away from man jump. But then he fell ill a short time later and he was pronounced dead within 30 minutes. And the autopsy found that the beating had caused some problems with some existing problems that he had. And while I understand her feelings of frustration, I don't think it's okay to beat a man to death. I agree. And I think that's my biggest issue with vigilante justice. You ask the average person, I think they would be understanding of it. But everyone deserves due process and to have their time in court. I mean, it sounds like this guy did have his time in court and people just kind of like didn't care about him really, which is definitely a fault in our justice system. But you shouldn't take matters into your own hands because what if then his family, you know, like reacted and then like beat some of the people up that were on camera? Like, is that vigilante justice then for his family? Because they clearly would want some justice. I'm glad you mentioned Batman because I think there's a lot of superheroes that are kind of like anti-heroes get vigilante justice i know the punisher is a big one and i think when they think of the punisher they do think of like an anti-authority person and that's very attractive and i think that's like a big element of vigilante justice that's so true and you have brought up due process and that brings me to the case of timothy chandler because his house was actually set on fire by Robert Bell and Lamar Sellers before he was even convicted of a crime. And unfortunately, his wife ended up dying in that fire and he ended up homeless. And again, this was before he was even convicted on the child pornography charges that he was arrested for. With that type of crime, child pornography and sex offenders, which I know we're going to be talking about, people definitely don't see them as human and they think they deserve like the worst punishment imaginable. I'm sure you've probably seen people say like all sex offenders need to be castrated and why are we testing drugs on animals when we could just test them on sex offenders? And that's not how things work. One other um, vigilante justice case we wanted to talk about was Ellie Nessler, who shot and killed her son's um, sexual abuser in court, actually. Um, she shot him, I believe, five times in the head and he was killed instantly. And she, again, was just very frustrated by the disservice that the criminal justice system was doing to her. I don't remember the specifics of the case. I think he either... Um, wasn't really being properly investigated or maybe he was like out on bond, something like that. But he had molested her son multiple times and it was later found out that she was high on methamphetamines when she did this. But again, I think a lot of people can understand why she would do this. But this ended up having a lot of negative effects on her family and her son actually, who she was hoping to protect, had his own issues with the law. And in 2004, he actually stomped a man to death in a fit of rage and he's serving 28 years to life sentence for first degree murder. So now we're going to move from a case where the police were helpless to one that shows the police woefully destroying evidence. The story of Eric Tamiyatsu shows what happens when a sheriff is out of control. 41-year-old Eric was a native of Hood River, Oregon. He operated a fruit orchard business from his house that was located in a remote area outside of town. Eric and a friend, Diane Anderson, were at Eric's house in June of 2001. They heard strange noises that sounded like knocking on the side of the house. 
They investigated the sound and found shoe prints in the dirt. These were later washed away. Diana left a few hours later and said bye to her friend for the last time. This was the last time anyone saw Eric alive. The next week, Don Dixon went to Eric's house. Don was a friend and business consultant, and he was worried when no one had heard from Eric. Don had a spare key and used it to enter Eric's house. When he entered the bedroom, Don found Eric's naked decomposing body. County Sheriff Joel Wappler said he noticed no evidence of foul play and believed that Eric had died naturally. As Eric's body was being removed from the house, Hood River County Sheriff Wappler approached Don Dixon and wanted to know if Eric had a burn pile on his property. Wappler decided to have Eric's bed and bedding burnt. He claimed this was to spare Eric's family. Don didn't think it was inappropriate, and the following morning, Dixon set fire to the soiled bedding from Eric's room. When he was done, there was nothing left but a metal frame and a pile of ashes. The medical examiner disagreed with Wapler's assessment and found Eric had three bullet wounds. His body was badly decomposed, and that made it difficult to determine what happened. This was not helped by the destruction of evidence at the hands of the sheriff and Dixon. There have been several suspects in this case. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. The first is Eric Smith, who was a friend of Tamiyasu, and they had started a business selling used cars that went out of business and cost them $15,000. Smith claims the idea that he would murder Eric is nonsense, and he did pass a polygraph test. The second suspect is Don Dixon, who, as you recall, found the body and burned the bedding at the request of the sheriff. His motive isn't really clear, but why would he destroy evidence? In March of 2002, Wampler issued a challenge for Don Dixon to take a polygraph test after he was named a person of interest in Eric's murder. Detective Jerry Tiffany said Dixon complied with that request at his own expense. Although Dixon declined comment on the procedure, Tiffany said the sheriff's office was able to obtain the results which proved inconclusive. Primarily because of medication Dixon is taking for kidney transplant that he underwent in December of 2001. He claimed that Tamayasu was depressed and may have been suicidal. The last suspect is Sheriff Wampler. Alleged rumors started being spread around town that Eric was dating a Polynesian woman. Wampler's wife was Polynesian and the town started talking about how Eric was sleeping with the sheriff's wife. Wampler denied this claim and attempted to take a polygraph test. But the, Oregon State but the Oregon State Police refused to allow it because he was not a viable suspect, and then Wampler was advised by a top commander to not proceed with the test because it would not help the case to get into a local mudslinging match. So, Jenny, this case is really weird, and we don't have much to go off of, but what do you think happened to Eric Tamiyatsu? I am personally suspicious of Don Dixon. I've heard that he really wasn't as close with Eric as many people said he was. Like, I think maybe this was more of a friendship in Don Dixon's mind. And I had also heard of him um, trying to make Eric Smith look bad, trying to say that there was like a big conflict between um, Smith and Tamiyasu that didn't really happen. I really wish we had these footprints that were outside that got washed away. And that's obviously like, because of nature most likely but I wish we had them I feel like that would really help crack this case what about you 
So I definitely agree that I wish we had more evidence. But as for who I think was the most likely suspect, honestly, I think the sheriff was because, you know, the rumors were spreading. He got really defensive. Of course, he said the standard lineup, no, he wasn't with my wife, but there wasn't really any evidence to support whether they had an affair or not. And it's not like Whopper provided any evidence stating that his wife wasn't having an affair with Eric. And I can definitely see Whopper being so mad that he murdered Eric, knowing that he's the sheriff, so he's going to be the one to respond to a scene like this. And then he ended up destroying evidence, which I feel like just adds to, okay, you're trying to hide something. Yeah, that should be, like, the number one thing you're taught in, like, the police academy or, like, investigator academy. Like, don't destroy evidence. That's what pisses me off most about this case because you ask the average person, like, they'll know not to burn a blanket and bedding that the victim was found on because there's clearly some type of DNA evidence, whether it's hair, whether it's blood, anything like that. And in 2001, like, people were aware of DNA and, like, the power that it has. That's so true. And it brings up this concept of a cover-up. And a cover-up is any attempt, whether it was successful or not, to conceal evidence of wrongdoing, error, incompetence, or any other embarrassing information. And a passive cover-up information is simply not provided, and in an active cover-up, deception is used. The expression is usually applied to people in positions of authority who abuse their power, like a sheriff, to avoid or silence criticism or to deflect guilt of wrongdoing. Perpetrators of a cover-up may be responsible for a misdeed, a breach of trust or duty, or a crime. And a cover-up that involves multiple parties is considered a conspiracy. And while the terms are often used interchangeably, a cover-up usually involves withholding incriminatory evidence while whitewashing is releasing misleading evidence. So in this case, it seemed like there was a destruction of evidence or spoliation of evidence on the part of the sheriff. It's interesting to me how quick the state police kind of came to his defense too. And maybe, you know, taking a polygraph test would have been like a waste of time and resources. But I mean, I guess they didn't really have anything hard evidence-wise to really link him to the crime. But that's so bizarre to, um, again, to burn the evidence. Why would you do that to make, why would his family really need to look in there anyway? It's often argued that people destroy evidence because they're guilty. And I don't know, that's something that I agree with because I don't understand why you would destroy evidence that could possibly make it look like you're guilty if you're not. I agree. Um, I do think in this case, it could just be poor police work and incompetence. This was a small town that probably didn't have like a lot of murders going on and I don't know, maybe they just thought that, again, was the best thing to do for Eric's family, like the sheriff said. It's very strange regardless. Um, But we do see police mishandling evidence, people destroying evidence. We see, um, I can't think of like a specific case off the top of my head, but how many times have we seen like a body in a car and then the car gets set on fire to destroy evidence? We also see a lot of evidence being mishandled by the police too. And again, you could say that's part of covering something up, hiding something for someone, or just general incompetence and lack of resources. 
That's true. And I just wanted to give one example of a cover-up that's always really interesting. Um, and that's the Iran-Contra affair, which was a political scandal in the United States that occurred during the second term of the Reagan administration. And it had senior administration officials secretly facilitating the sales of arms to Iran, which at the time was subject arms embargo. And they hoped to use the proceeds from the sale to help fund Contras in Nicaragua. And 14 administration officials were actually indicted, including the then Secretary of Defense. 11 convictions came out of that. And anyone that was indicted or convicted, they were all pardoned on the final days during the presidency of George H.W. Bush, who had been the vice president at the time of the affair. So I think a reason why people believe that there could have been a cover-up is because of the immense amount of power that a sheriff holds within their locality. So they're able to set police priorities and they can even form a posse. And one example of this is Joe Arpaio of Maricopa County, Arizona. And he infamously wanted his officers to focus solely on immigration and often neglected investigating other crimes like sexual assault. And another issue with sheriffs are that they're elected, and that means that they have to campaign like politicians. So I think my first question would be, what would be the best way to actually get a sheriff into office? Should they be elected, or should we be choosing them through other means? I think it's ridiculous that judges and sheriffs are elected. I think having those standards that they set for themselves, there's more pressure for them to be tough on crime. And then when that happens, you don't really get to look at cases on a case-by-case basis and look at the individuals involved and see what you know the best punishment for them would be. I don't know what exactly would be best. I just feel like having people interview. So it's more merit-based than like election-based. I definitely agree with you that we definitely need to avoid any type of partisan um, designation when it comes to judges and sheriffs uh, specifically, because I think anytime you add that political realm to the job, like you said, they feel like they need to uphold that. So if I know that my voters are racist, um, I'm going to sit there and I'm going to try to deport as many illegal immigrants as possible or facilitate the deportation of as many immigrants as possible. And that's exactly what Arpaio was doing. And to the point where he was actually held in contempt for it, and he was pardoned by um, current President Trump. And I think that's also a question of what is the best mechanism to hold sheriffs accountable? Because if someone is doing something so wrong that they were convicted for it, but they can just be pardoned, by someone else like how do we hold them accountable how do we make sure that they're not doing things that's going to hurt the people that they're supposed to be protecting that's the biggest question and i think that's something as a nation we're talking about um i did want to say arpaio is trash i've seen articles about how prisoners in maricopa county um, jails and prisons are forced to wear like pink because 
I guess to him that like demasculates them and embarrasses them. They also live in like tents and they're like out in the heat all day. It's a question of like human rights, I kind of think. To hold people accountable, I would say to have some kind of third party group or another sheriff's department maybe investigate them. But I don't really know how helpful that would be either, because I'm sure a lot of people would know each other like agency by agency. Um, I know for the Maitreese Richardson case, I don't know if like every sheriff's office is supposed to have like an internal affairs department. I guess they probably are. But with Maitreese Richardson, the LA County Sheriff's Department, their internal affairs um, office is again, like alleged to be corrupt, just like I guess everything in LA County is. So it it is, it brings up the question, who do we trust? You know, who's going to police the police? You know, we keep hearing claims of corruption. Maybe some of your funding gets taken away. I know that's another big thing people are talking about too, defunding the police and spreading their funds into other um, like community-based organizations and different um, areas that will help the community like education and healthcare. Maybe we think of taking some funds away. I definitely agree that having some punitive damages would definitely set the stage for people to be more accountable. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the cases of Ken McElroy and Eric Tamiyasu. Make sure you click the subscribe button. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube every Wednesday with a new episode. Follow us on Instagram at Crime Corruption Cocktails and on Twitter at Charade Inc. Please consider donating to our Patreon. This will help us get better equipment and bring higher quality content to you. We appreciate any amount you are able to give. This is Jenny and Dell signing off. Stay safe.